HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by TechServe, New York's original and still the best Apple computer, iPod, and iPhone store and repair shop. For more information, visit TechServe.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Uh, welcome to the show, Snacky Tunes on here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Greg Bresnitz is on his way back from what seems like an amazing time in France. Cannot wait to hear all about it. Just a reminder, our July edition, super excited about, of the Barbecue Blowout happening tomorrow night at Good Company with uh, Brad Spence and Mark Vetri from Philadelphia. Jason Green will be on the decks. Heritage is going to be there. Food Republic will be there. Giving away a copy of the Grilling Book by Bon Appetit. Nikki Digital taking photos. Go to bbqblowoutjuly.eventbrite.com. Really excited. A lot of fun. See you there. As always, free to get in. $10 to eat. Uh, it's going to be a blast. Uh, but very excited today. Out-of-town guest we met while he was uh, one of the wonderful, insightful talking heads on Unique Eats on the Cooking Channel, produced and directed by the amazing Irene Wong. Mike Thielen, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you, Darren. Uh, welcome to New York. A little bit warmer than it is, I imagine, in Portland right now. It's been a hot summer in Portland, but this weekend was crazy hot. I mean, crazy hot here in New York City. This weekend was... This was one of those weekends where you go, okay, I know I've worked all week, and I know it's the weekend, and it's the summer, and I should be outside, but it's so hot. And the type of weekend where people like me who come from the great northern woods of the Pacific Northwest like run to the nearest Uniqlo and buy a bunch of linen. I, you know, uh, bringing up Uniqlo... Last winter was the first time I broke down when we had that really bad cold front, and I bought that uh, thin, insulated, I forget what it was, but they're heat tech type of stuff. Yep. It's amazing. And it was like 70 bucks, cheap. Cheap. Yeah. Cheap. And it was just, it was, it was amazing, because it was one of those things like right after work, and it was just a line, and the only place that the people who was in the store was just in the heat tech section. People just loaded up. They're just, they're, everyone broke. It was like the same day. And I was here actually for that extreme spat of weather as well. Got yes. stuck here for a couple of days. I remember. Yeah. So it's uh, you know, look, New York does really well when it's not in extreme weather condition. Um, but I can actually probably deal more with the cold than I can with the heat in New York. There's something about the way just the the city bakes you a little bit. It's true, but you have to you have to agree with the fact that New York, especially Brooklyn, has an incredible patio culture. Oh yeah. Well, look. The reason why I don't leave New York or Brooklyn in the summer is because the the summer culture in this town is amazing. It's it's really it's it's pitch perfect. It's true. Lots of stuff to do. A lot of it doesn't cost a lot of money. I mean, look at us right now. We have a view of of one of the most coveted uh, bar, one of the most coveted patios in the entire world at Roberta's. Yeah, then the, I don't know if you've been to one of their tiki disco parties on Sunday, but they're phenomenal. I have not. This Legendary. Pa- this patio makes me want a tiki disco. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, you are among uh, many things. The co-founder of Feast Portland, mm-hmm. which is now in its second year. Yep. Coming up in September, which I, knock on wood, will be attending. I'm very excited about it. I haven't been to Portland since... I think I spent one night there when my brother was at school in Eugene. Which is shocking for you because you seem to be everywhere. I know. It's just, it's, you know how it is? There's some restaurants or some books or some artists or some, like, that are on your list of things you should go or read or listen to. And some restaurants you're like, you got to go eat at. And for some reason or another, the best laid plans never happen. No, it's true. I have a copy of David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest, that's been staring me down for about 10 years. I've used it to prop open my window. I've used it to kill bugs. It's quite a commitment, and you know, for a New Yorker, a six-hour flight out to Portland, Oregon is also quite a commitment too. It is, you know, uh, that book I think eventually sat in. It went from like shelf 
to storage to donation. Well, it's like a hundred pages long. I mean, you get through the first couple hundred pages, and you're like, "Oh, I'm getting into it." And you're like, "Had I been reading another author, I'd be done by now." You know, a girl, my girlfriend in college uh, gave it to me, and she was like, "It's my favorite book. I've read it three or four times." And Ugh. I was just like, "I was like, what?" Pe- See, is that true though? Have has anyone actually finished that book? I think people have finished it once. I think, like anything, I think. Have read the book, have gone to the tiny little cafe sure. that's you know four hours from anywhere. Have you know went and found that one band play in a garage or barn somewhere. People people make the effort now. If it's the effort to actually enjoy it versus saying that they've done the event, I don't know. Um, but let's go back. Let's let's go back to Mike. Take how far back can we go in your life when you started thinking about food and bringing people together for events? Uh, well, I think pre-event. I mean, I, I I come from a big family. My my father was had a previous marriage to my mother, and uh, through that marriage, he had four sisters, uh, four daughters who were my sisters, um, who are my sisters, who are you know uh, twenty years older than me. So they were almost like aunts in terms of the age range. But through their marriages, they had married into families from Mexico, into families from Vietnam. So my you know into families from Japan. So my upbringing was multiracial, and okay. through that, I was. You know, our family was, was like your family or anyone's family, big and crazy and full of drama. Every family's like that. But we'd come together over pretty epic spreads of food. And you know, at a young age, I was exposed to a lot of interesting types of food in different cultures. And you know, it just immediately as a kid, I, I really got it and identified with that. And you know, I, I think my entire life, I've really kind of seen the world through the lens of food. And, and you know, I judge cities by food. I like to hang out yeah. with people who like food. There's countries. I, I have a friend of mine who lives in a country which shall remain nameless, and I don't want to visit her because the food sucks. It's like, I yeah. love you, but can we like, can we like meet in Mexico City? It's it's. Uh, I've definitely planned travels more and more around food, which is tough because even some great big cities that I know that I need to go to before. I can stop traveling as much as I can. I might not make it to because I was. I said, okay, after the initial like, oh, this is great local yep. boiled potatoes and yep. pierogies or <laughs> like <Careful>. fried <laughs> pork cutlet or something like yep. that, which I love and I'll eat. But like after day four, you're like, oh, God, can yep. I just um, – Well, I lived in Ireland for six months, so I can completely relate to you. No good food culture in Ireland? No, I mean it's – people say it's changed a lot, but um, – you know, it, it's uh, it's not, you know, and again, Ireland has a lot of great things to offer. I mean, there's the great drinking culture, of course, oh, yeah. and it's not just, you know, yes, there's a great club culture. Yes, I was there when I was 23, so well, to, be, to be fair, I wasn't probably looking for, you know, great food experiences that time in my life, but, you know, growing up, they had great whiskey. They had great beer. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, you get really used to. I mean, this whole organic, sustainable, local thing we all grew up with. I mean, yeah. that's the thing about oh, yeah. like Portland and, and Seattle and the West Coast is you know. So it makes us laugh when people say, "Oh, Portland's almost over," or the Portland trend, or you know, even in the beginning when people say, "Oh, Portland's so hot," they're doing this. It's like we've always done that. Right. It's, it's not. It's not a trend out there. It's real. And it sounds like growing up with home cooked meals and type of and international ethnic sort of spread i imagine that your take when people go oh look at this new cuisine oh look at this new thing you go yeah i I grew up eating that well i mean yeah but anything that brings people together over food though is awesome and it's it's incredible that you know 
you know, I would say the food culture, and I'm not sure if it's the cause or the effect, but in any case, it's like food culture is nothing more beautifully reflects our multicultural society than food. Yeah. You know, you can go to a city like Houston, Texas, which is big and diverse and sprawling. You're going to spend all day in a car, but when you get out, there's amazing food everywhere. Or, you know, it's not just Brooklyn or, or Manhattan or Boston or Seattle or Portland or Austin. It's like you go to Kansas City now and there's good food. It's kind of kind of an everywhere thing. So that's that's pretty special. Yes, in the cities. In between, it, it's in true. between cities. We still have a lot of work to do in and the, the country. And the thing is, though, what I've found is that it's not just in between American cities. It's in between a lot of cities, oh, either in, in, in Europe, yeah, Asia, totally, anywhere. Totally. You start going, uh, there's not great food everywhere. But that's that's part of the journey of finding, like, okay, uh, you know, who's making the pate on the side of the road in right. middle of country France or we're serving, you know, tomato rub baguettes in Spain somewhere. Yep, yep. What was your first food memory? Do you remember – let me rephrase that. What was your first food memory of eating something where you go, this is not like other kids I'm hanging out with? Okay, so my brother-in-law Gilbert's from Guadalajara, Mexico, and he – this was back in the late 80s, so I was, you know, 10 years old or something. And we would – we would, um, you know, he would try to find goat meat, and this is before the internet. We could just go on the, online and order anything you want, dry ice, pay a little extra, it's there. Right. This is before there was, like, all the wild game purveyors locally. This is before – um, there was halal butchers in Portland. Now there's quite a few, and then there was none. So he couldn't find goat meat. So his only thing that he could do was buy one live, reportedly once from a petting zoo, and like a place where you could go like buy goats as pets. He takes it home into his uh, suburban uh, garage, and he like you know the, first the kids played with it for a few days, of course, and then you know he takes it in the garage, shuts the door, and my a friend of mine has you know, who lived across the street and grew up across the street from my brother-in-law Gilbert was saying, yeah, there was like a stream of blood coming out of the garage because he had butchered it in the garage. And then he had this incredible recipe. He's from Jalisco, you know, Guadalajara, which is an incredible city. And there was this Jalisco uh, dish. It was a slow-roasted uh, kind of pressure-cooked goat, you know, and, and he couldn't find a pressure cook big enough e either. So he would find, you know, those giant, like, stock pots that you used to, like, boil, you know, lobster in. Yeah. And he would, like, tie it up with, you know, all these different ropes and things and tape it down in order to make a pressure cooker out of it. It was totally jerry-rigged, this thing. But he would make this goat, and the meat was so pungent, and it had all these different chilies, and it had cinnamon. And I remember eating this just thinking, this is like crazy. This is like making my head hurt. It's so interesting. And being you know 10 or 11 years old and just being you know transported to some faraway land, I mean, literally, because... It, it food has the ability to do that. It mm -hmm. can just enter you into and immerse you in a culture, even when you're not there. And how long after that did it take you to find a dish that replicated that goat dish in your travels? It see, the, there's always those special dishes when you travel in certain places. Um, you know, I think in Spain. I lived in Spain for a year, and I think what really was equivalent to that was the Iberian ham. Mm. You know, I mean, just what goes into it. Uh, you know, it's the if for those who don't know, it comes from a you know southern part of Spain and Andalusia. These pigs are free range. They grow up underneath the cork oak trees, and they eat nothing but the acorns their entire lives. So they fatten up slowly. You know, think of them as like paleo freaking. You know, they're like they're like paleo pigs. Yeah, those pigs are here about the paleo diet. Yeah. Be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, totally. It's what we do. It's what we do. It's what we, we do. We eat nuts and yeah. So anyways, all they eat is that their entire life. So the, the meat is just gorgeously marbled and it's like nutty and, you know, you literally are what you eat. And uh, when, when they butcher this, this animal, 
I mean, the, the, the Iberian ham is just incredible. And you can get it in the States now, but you really can't get the best stuff in the States. No. But that's uh, – that's, it's, it's funny because you mentioned there are so many things you can get on the internet. Yeah. But there is at some point where it's like, yeah, you can get a version yeah. of stuff on the internet. But to really get the best of the best of the world, you still somewhat have to go to the source, especially for food. Especially in America where there's all the FDA regulations yep. Yep. or the taxes or whatever yep. food politics going on. Sometimes you just got to get on a plane yeah. and go to where they're making it. Well, yeah, you can't. I mean, it's illegal to import a lot of that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. the reason why you don't see a full spectrum of Iberian ham production, from what I understand, there has to be an a, a USDA inspector there in the facility in order for it to be imported. The other thing, you know, think of raw milk cheeses in places yeah. like France. You know, I mean, there's nothing like this stuff is incredible. Um, the closest you can get, you can go up to Montreal. That's true. You go to Montreal and you get a lot of raw cheeses. And you can find raw cheeses in the States. Yeah. It's just, I was at the fancy food show last week, and the amount of just different types of cheeses and meats and things like that just give you a taste of just how big it is and how special each uh, story people have when it comes to having those, like, this is my grandfather's recipe to have made cheese, this is the ham we've been carrying for forever, but... You know, it's one thing to be in the Javits Center. It's another thing to go to a farm in Spain. No, it's true. And I think, you know, you hear a lot of people say that, you know, um, I mean, there's nothing like being in a place eating the local food or, you know, I mean, that, that's the whole thing about you know, when you think about the whole local thing, we think, OK, local means, you know, we're going to you know, let me just say food sets up this sort of double standard because we, we there's this urban culture that is just fanatical about like where the uh, tomato came from yeah. but then they forget that half the stuff they wear is also an agricultural product they don't give a sh- you know they don't care where it comes from no so but there's also some point and i i think there was a t- a turning point in my obsession with food and that sort of fanaticism i remember reading this times article about it was about it was about fanaticism mm-hmm. and about people going out to like Sheepshead Bay or yep. something like that and to find this special type of fish. And there was some loss of joy and some just like where just was so much about like I have to get this product yep. because yep. I have to get this product. Not because it was anything that was something that they may have enjoyed. And maybe they did enjoy it, but it was more about like having it to say that you had it where I think it is that double edge of sort, uh, sort of food culture where you go – well, is it really that good? Do you really care about it? Or are you just trying to add another thing to your checklist of things you had and that you ate? Well, I think what you're talking about is there's been a massive shift in our culture surrounding food. I mean, first of all, local food, I think it's important to honor local food because, you know, and that means, you know, when you're in a place, you're really going to connect culturally. I mean, the local food movement a lot of times is talked about an environmental thing, but, you know, it's a cultural thing, and it's just a deep way of connecting with the local culture. And there's nothing like, you know, eat, sitting in southern Spain, drinking a great sherry and eating, in, you know, you know, eating Iberian ham. I mean, there, there is that. But it does, you know, food culture has bred a lot of uh, f- fanaticism. I actually did a TED Talk about, a TEDx Portland Talk about two months ago, and the theme of it was how food has become almost like religion. You know, and I, mm-hmm. I actually related to this because you know I'm I'm not a religious person at this point, but I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. Really? Yeah. Little known fact. Um, there we go. Not that anyone cares, but little known fact. But one of the things I learned, you know, that was that culture is very uh, multiracial, and that's why I was exposed to all that great food. And you know, one thing I can say is like a very, it's a very integrated community. But uh, you know, you would hear people talk about you know, religion in a way. And, you know, they would say, oh, you have to do this because 
here's why, and it's you know based on something that you know somebody else with a differing opinion would would object to. And foods almost become the same way. You know, you talk about vegans or you know people who are advocating for only a plant based diet, and they have all the science and literature to back it up. In the same way, any religion member has <laughs> right. all the scripture to back it up. And right. then you have you know the folks who are like, okay, you know. We advocate a paleo diet, and here's our list of experts. So it's almost like food is evolving into this, like, you have all these different religious groups. You hang out with your own little group. Yeah. You vehemently disagree with people, you know, and, and I think, you know, that's fine. As long as people are interested in food, it's great to be passionate, but I think we cannot lose sight of the most important piece, which is this great power of food to bring people together. This special program has been brought to you by TechServe. TechServe is presenting a series of workshops for girls interested in science, technology, engineering, and math topics. Open to girls ages 13 to 16. Hey girls, even if it feels like you don't have enough experience to create a resume, you're going to need one to land your first job or internship. Learn how to turn your achievements at school, summer camp, or volunteering into a resume with TechServe on July 27th. 2013, join TechServe to learn about the ins and outs of resume writing. Find out how to write about your accomplishments, how to find entry-level jobs and internships, and so much more. The workshop will be held at TechServe's retail store in Chelsea at 119 West 23rd Street. Admission is on a pay-what-you-can basis, with all proceeds going to the Lower East Side Girls Club. TechServe. Make stuff happen. When did you start shifting from being someone who loved food to seeing food as an event and as a career, uh, as a lifestyle for you? Uh, okay, so I moved to Spain. This was I was working, you know, during my twenties. I did a lot of things. I wrote for some tech magazines and television stations, and like worked in commercial real estate. And Were you traveling a lot? I traveled. Yeah, I was, I was like one of those kids. I lived in like Ireland for a year, and I lived in D.C. for a year, and I lived in. You know, I lived in um, San Francisco for a year, and then I landed in Portland. This was like when the real estate boom was hot. Bought a house at age 26, and the market was out of control. And, you know, my wife and I one day, this was like when I was 28, we were like, you know, we could stay in our house and, and trade it in for a bigger house, or we could sell it and go, go live abroad. So that's what we did. Amazing. We sold our house, quit our jobs, and moved to Spain. And, you know, we lived in Madrid for a year. As one does. As one does. As one does. And then, you know, the, the nice, I mean, not nice for why others. Why did you pick Madrid? I've always felt this connection to Spain. I don't know why. Yeah, I've always wanted to be in Spain. And I think probably because, you know, in, in retrospect, Spain's a country that you could really live incredibly well for not a lot of money. Yeah. I it, mean, Madrid is great. I love the Mercado San Miguel. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Oysters, the biggest oysters I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and then there's a lot of food culture. I mean, it's a great food city. Oh, it's an amazing food city. And, you know, it's, Madrid is also a city that is less on the radar. I mean, everyone talks about Spain mm-hmm. and they talk about Barcelona, which is a great city. I, but Barcelona is a fun party. We're going to go hang out till sunrise. Sure. Yeah. Well, Madrid is that too. But, yeah. you know, I would say, you know, Madrid is a Spanish city. Barcelona is in Catalonia. It's a different culture. I mean, yeah, mm. it's influenced by Spain, but people from, from Barcelona are Catalan. They don't. I mean, right. Spanish is not their first language. Right, right, right. You know, so so it's a it's a different thing. It's not so. You know, Spain is. You know, when you go to Madrid, you're talking about a place that's like the heart of Castilla. You know, it's the heart of, it's the heart of of Spanish culture. It's it's a very different place, and this is where, you know, 
they have a saying there. It's uh, translates. You know, it's uh, what is it? it? Anyway, it's a weather statement that says, you know, eight months of winter and four months of hell. <laughs> and essentially what it what it creates because of the extreme weather conditions are all these great cured meats and great cured mm-hmm. cheeses and, you know, a cuisine that, that's that's representative of that. And I think in Madrid, living around that, I mean, everyone identified with food as part of who they were. It wasn't like, you know, the States has its own food culture going, but Madrid was a little different. It was like you, you would ask someone, for example, what place has the best Spanish tortilla? And they would say, my mom. Right. My mom makes the best Spanish tortilla. And, and the whole point of that is, well, you know, we might say the same thing about some of our moms cooking too. But the point was this Spanish tortilla that I grew up with is part of who I am. Right. So they're identified by the dishes that, sure. that are it's, – it's part of who they are. And there's one place in America like that. Where? Texas. Barbecue in Hill Country. Right. It's like, I mean, there's probably other places, but... Well, the Jewish culture. Okay. And the, the like, Chinese culture as well. If you ask somebody who's, wh- where can I go for the best fill-in Jewish sure. cuisine, Chinese cuisine, they're going to say, my mother. Yeah, I agree. I think what I mean is, as a geographical region, though. Absolutely. You know, you go to Texas... Hey, I, it's not our fault that we had the diaspora happen to us. No, it, it, <laughs> it's true. Well, it, you know, it's, it's interesting... Um, you know, I, I with Unique Eats, we did a yeah. segment on Franklin Barbecue. Love it. It's incredible. Shout out to Aaron. Yeah, shout out to Aaron, one of the greatest people in the food world. And his barbecue is incredible. But I remember, you know, I was in Texas. I was used to uh, run their, their food or help run their food festival down there. And I was flying. I came into Texas and I tried a bunch of places for Unique Eats. And I was leaving the next day to New York City. And I was talking to this woman, Beth Pav, who's in the food world. I'll never forget this. She's from Hill Country. And, and she said, what do you – I told her we were doing an episode on barbecue. She's like, well, what do you know about barbecue? And, you know, of course, I replied with what any, you know, smug, erudite food writer, oh, well, slow and low, post-oak, Hill Country, right. Texas. You know, I started giving – and she said, okay, then let me ask you this. What's the best barbecue in Texas? And, of course, you know – like anybody who's read the list, oh, well, Franklin Snows, and you go down the list, she's like, no, it's what you grew up with. Right. And Yeah, and that's a culture where everybody's mom or dad or grandfather or grandmother has a smoker and barbecues a point of pride, but it, yep. just, it just cooked into their existence. But that's also one of the few places where you can really look at uh, an area and say, this is the regional cuisine. This is You can look at yep. Texas and say, this is barbecue, this is cuisine. I guess North Carolina – a little bit or like or maybe different. Memphis, but it's different. It's different. It's and different. it's not to take anything away from it. I mean, a friend of mine who, uh, you know, who wrote an article in a national publication proclaiming Franklin barbecue, the best yeah. in America, you know, they ended up getting all these calls from Kansas city. Of course. You know I mean? I mean? People that, that is a point of, you know, that's like, I mean, that that's like arguing over where's the center of Christianity. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> there's a show on the air right now called barbecue, BBQ Pitmasters, yep. and Aaron was actually yep. a guest judge on a recent episode, and they had a, a barbecue pitmaster from Georgia, and I guess one of the ju- the judges is from Georgia as well, and they were talking about all this pride of, of Georgian barbecue, which I'm sure exists. Yep. That being said, up until I watched that episode this weekend, I had no idea that Georgia was really known for its barbecue. No, and, and, and I don't, nor had I, but, you know, it makes me want to go to Georgia's... Yeah, no, because Georgia, Georgia, first off, Atlanta... I think Georgia's going to really emerge as a huge culinary scene. Well, yeah. It's got the agriculture. It's got Atlanta. It's cheap in a way that you can afford to do a sort of grandiose restaurant 
or just sort of have a niche type of restaurant. But the idea of someone saying, where's the best barbecue in America? And someone saying, Georgia. I, I, I was like, what are you even talking about? Well, best is such a funny word, though, to use for anything. I mean, best is relative in the food world. But it, you know, let's be honest, though. I mean... I worked as a I was a you know quickly going back to my story yes. I I worked as a summer after after living in Madrid for a year I worked on organic farms in Spain and Portugal for a summer and came back and was sort of like I always thought of food as my passion but no, wait was this when you sold your house or this is before this is after I uh, so I sold my house we moved to Spain yeah we did a lot of things like we we did a lot of crazy we took a train across America went to Switzerland for a month how tra- was the train across America it was awesome but the key to the train across America is you don't don't do it in direct. Like we went from Seattle, got out in Glacier National Park, right. got back on the hardest stretches between Glacier and Minneapolis, hung out in Minneapolis, which by the way is a great food city. Great food city. We had uh, one of the Sessman brothers on here who used uh-huh. to work at Zingerman's. Yeah, great food city, great design city. You know, I mean, really good graphic design, good art city, uh, good public art. Min- Minneapolis is a great city that, that people don't often talk about enough. Um, went, then went to Chicago, another great city with good public art. Amazing. Uh, and then went to Pittsburgh. And then uh, they have good art too. I haven't been there in about. It's been a while since I've been there. They have uh, well, the Warhol Museum is there, of course. Yeah. And then you know when you have two large universities, you're going to get sort of that creative yep. collegiate. Even though it's Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, you still get that yeah. collegiate artsy thing going. Sure. On. And, and Pittsburgh is also blessed with a lot of you know interesting topography and good building stock. You know, and I think oh, yeah. it's it's having this resurgent. Right now, because of that, they have uh, a, they have a couple of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright houses there, yep. if I remember correctly. Yep. Well, I think Falling Water is not too far. Yeah. Um, anyways, anyway, so you're going across. So we yes. go to New York, and then we took a road trip to the south and back, and then flew to Switzerland, uh, hung out there for a while, went around Spain and Germany and France. Went to you know, accidentally went to Lyon and didn't know it was the gastronomic capital of France. It just blew my mind. Oh, you just wound up there? Yeah, it was actually funny. There was a flood. In Switzerland, it was the same week as Hurricane Katrina, too. Okay, and it was it was I have to say pretty terrible watching on TV the utter chaos of the response system in the U.S. and then watching you know the Swiss the entire all of Lucerne was under four feet of water and three days in advance they built this incredible you know raised uh, you know system and like sandbagged the whole city. The only the only fatality was was a cow. Granted, it wasn't on the magnitude. Of of Katrina, but it was still like, geez, these people really have it together in well, Switzerland. They talk about that part of the world having those plans for those type of one hundred sure. year star- storms yeah. and planning on saying like, well, this is what's going to happen because of the way that they built their city so yeah. close to the water and how water is a part yeah. of their makeup. No, it's true, and it's it's also you know Switzerland is a you know you're talking about the people who invented insurance and the modern watch. This is an organized society. Yeah, but you know we would we had planned to go down to Florence. And, and for the first time in like forty years, the train had, train tracks washed out, so we ended up going to Lyon, and it was totally mind blowing. But you know, lived in Madrid for a year, and then spent a summer on organic farms. Came back and was about to turn you know thirty, and was like, "Geez, what am I going to do with my life? I've, you know, I've had some good experience, but I've always thought of, of food as my passion, and not you know like it's separate." I just realized I needed to make this into what I did, and uh, I you know became a. Uh, you know, an intern at, at a Alt Weekly, and then quickly became the food writer slash critic. And then I, you know, went up to the Portland Portland Monthly Magazine. I just my gigs got better, but I started uh, consulting on events on the side. And for me, I found you could tell a story with an event. Like if you wanted to show people, like 
you know, that, and that's the key. Like people who really do events well, I mean, if, if you just want to do an event, you may as well plan a damn wedding. Like if you just want oh to God. do like. But that's what people do. Yeah. And that's the that's thing. what most people do. And, you know, it's funny you bring that up. Yeah. And I hate to, I, well, I don't hate to interrupt, but the wedding sure. thing, I'm an events guy. Yeah. You're an events guy. A lot of my friends, I'm sure your yeah. friends are events guys. And when you see people spend forty or fifty thousand dollars on a wedding, on one hand, I get it. Like yeah. this is one of sure. the only sanctioned times in their life where it's like you get to plan an event, yeah. curate the guest list, the music, the yeah. food. Like this is your day. Right. This is your big public coming out thing. And the everyone I talk to in food and events, you go, yeah, it's not. I don't know. There's just a checklist, and it's like not that crazy, and just sure. like the idea of spending fifty or sixty thousand dollars on a wedding. Seems a little ridiculous at some point. It's that that balance of being like, mm, like, how can we do it? Where it's or it's like them spending fifty or sixty thousand dollars and then having just like this very mediocre event. Well, people do that like in everything in life. They don't ask a question. No one thinks critically about anything. They're like, how do I make my wedding better? The reality is, at a wedding, let's just be honest about something. Okay. At a wedding, most people are bored by the ceremony, so make it quick. Very quick. No one gives a damn about watching you cut the cake. I'm sorry. No one cares. No one cares. Like, by the time dessert <laughs> is coming out, it's just like, yeah. just just have it come out. Right. Like, dessert, people, by the time people are drunk and sure. they want to dance and they've been eyeing that groomsman yeah. or that bridesmaid, like, they don't want to sit there and be like two hands on a knife. Like, Doesn't matter. On. Same thing with the first dance. All that. I mean, maybe somebody cares, but most people don't. If you want to make your wedding reception memorable, throw a really good party. And it's the throw same really thing about party. a food event. Like, Absolutely. Like, make it fun. Make, you know, on, on the... On the side of making, you know, making a great event, it's like make sure your lines are short. Don't run out of food. Don't run out. Of, don't run out of booze. Don't run out of beer. And make sure everyone from the chef to the volunteers has a blast. Everyone. I mean, really, that's what people. Uh, as food events become more and more popular, yeah, and you see more and more people. And I know that I think you and I have the same experience where people start reaching out to you, saying like, "Oh, how do you put on a food event? How do you do this? This is what I want to do." And right off the bat, you go. That's not going to work. Yeah. Like, and, and the thing is, though, people get... I don't like, even tell them that anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, good good luck. Yeah. Uh, I, I There was... Um, it's not... If, I, I won't say the specifics, because yeah. I'll give specific, but I, I met with someone recently, and they said it was... It was uh, they're like, we want to do an event where we have... I think... I mean, it was crazy. Something like maybe like 1,500 people show up, or, yeah. or maybe or 1,000. And we want everyone to come at the same time, and there's just like one line of food. And I just and I was like I was like are, do you hear yourself like even if even if you can get people through the line at ten seconds a person that's like hours of well waiting. they tried that in the Soviet Union in the eighties yeah they're called and, bread lines. <laughs> they're called bread lines um, so you're working your way up in Portland you're writing and you're starting to see that the story that can be told through an event is I mean it's a moment I mean I think that's why I like events and you bring up a good point is that you were either there or you weren't it wasn't some book that you could pick up. Like a couple weeks later, it's like the event was this happening. Yeah, no, it's true. And, you know, I think you know, I was doing events in Portland and then I did – ISCP came to town and I, I you know, helped. It was the host city chair and curated a bunch of great events. And then after that, I started doing events nationally. And, you know, for me, it was always – what excited me was, was – you know, telling a story and, and also trying to do things where people come to an event and actually learn things, like where people make a discovery at an event. You know, I'm not so interested, like with Feast, the event we do in Portland with, with Bon Appetit and uh, Travel Oregon, we really try to 
do stuff that's like not out of the box. I mean, if you look at a lot of food events around the country right now, there are a lot of them, the majority of them kind of go in the realm of, you know, let's get a bunch of celebrity chefs and, you know, and, and there's nothing against that. As long as, again, anything that brings people together around food is great. But, you know, I think with like a lot of the chefs that come to Feast Portland, you know, these are chefs who are driving food culture in right. America, but a lot of them, you know, the, you know, people, a lot of people haven't heard of. Like, you know, we got, haven't heard of yet. Exactly. Exactly. You want to be able, and I think what I love about Feast is to look back even a year later and go, "Holy shit, this <laughs> is the current who's who in America." Right, and you know, and I feel the same way. Like with the new direction of 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 there's this is happening overall in the food world right now. I mean, look at the new direction with Bon Appetit magazine. You know, like what the- I just want to say, haven't they the ma- mastered the like sliced prep? Like greasy, dripping, beautiful yeah, it's food shots. It's like yeah. they are they are the the kings of that. Sure, but like look at you know about a year and a half ago they they had an article, um, you know they'll do an article on like uh, they did an article. Then they do an article on Magnus Nilsson or you know mm-hmm. Rene Redzepi, yeah. which you know they did an article on Martin Picard up in up in um, Montreal. And I know if you're in the food world, you're thinking, oh well, I've heard of these people, but these are like the Leonard Cohen figures in the food world. Oh, absolutely. These well, are not the, like let's not forget Bon App clean house like two two and a half years. Yeah. They have a new direction. Sure, but that's the way it is. And I think it's that balance too, is because you you know as great it would be to have like a Martin Picard mm-hmm. come to like a feast. It's also great to have the new guy as well. No, it's true. And, and, and that's – we always – when Carrie Wilson and I, who's the co-founder of Feast, you know, she was instrumental in helping – she was head of PR at Food Network when they started the New York City Wine and Food Festival. And she was really instrumental in getting that event off the ground. And, you know, when we talked about starting an event in Portland, we d- you know, we deliberately wanted to do something that was a little different. And we made the comparison of doing something like a South by Southwest of food. And what that meant was we wanted to kind of have a nice mix of people who were, who were really well-known – but also a mix of up and comers, you know, and, and that's what we really did. So, like last year, we had you know folks like, uh, I mean, some some great chefs out there. You know, Sean Brock came out and did a dinner, and you know Gabrielle Hamilton was there doing a dinner. But then, thanks to our friends at Bon Appetit, uh, you know, Fergus Henderson came Amazing. and was 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 walking around and you know it's it's interesting in the words adam rapaport when he was saying fergus wanted to come and they bon appetit actually brought him out he's like you know to a lot of these young chefs this guy's like bob dylan which is exactly what he said he's right you know and the most talked about person around town in portland that weekend was fergus henderson and then young chefs got to meet him i mean this guy's like a hero to them it's amazing and it's amazing being that connector yeah so when did you so you're back from Spain. Mm-hmm. You go back to Portland, right? Yep. So you're in Portland. You're working your way up. What was the first event you threw? Uh, I worked. First event I did was it was sort of lame thinking about it. Now was at a condo in Portland as an attempt to pair coffee and chocolate. You know, and it Why was, was it lame because I tried to do too much, and that's anytime you try to do too much in anything, whether you're a restaurant, yeah. whether it's an event. It's not going to work because the takeaway needs to be the way that was fun and I and I was exposed to some cool things. But then after that, um, you know, the two sort of big, well, three big breaks for me. You know, was the first was uh, the woman, a woman by the name of Lisa Donahue, who works in the food world and was was really connected here in New York and still actually maintains an office here. Uh, gave me an opportunity to be the director of the Indie Wine Festival, which is a small, really cool wine festival in Portland, and that was my first event and. You know, from from her, I really learned the ability to 
be the connector through food events and really saw that, you know, that was just an amazing opportunity for, you know, on one hand for people who attended to really be exposed to some cool stuff, but also for businesses, you know, be it wineries or sponsors to really manifest business objectives through events. Right. And, and, you know, not only position their brands in certain ways, but also, you know, make strong statements about who they were and, and, you know, make connections. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about any event you do is how well can you connect people on the business side? It's a tough thing as well, especially, I think, being in Portland and Brooklyn. And we've talked about it before and less and less as you go on, but the concept of selling out, which I think was a very yep. 90s type of concept sure. or even 80s where it's, you're like, oh, I can't believe that you have this or that or anything. Well, it's like, no, how do you think this is happening? Someone's got to pay for it. Yeah. And we want to do big things, and we don't want the consumer to shoulder the entire cost. And then you find it's up to you as sort of a creative mm -hmm. to figure out how to execute a brand where it's not, uh, you know, all consuming the event, or it's not just like this unorganic fit. Yeah. Well, what, yeah. Have, what have actually been some of your more creative fits for brands? Okay, so um, the first event that I did in New York City in 2010, Lockhart Steel with Eater who was out in Portland mm -hmm. at a dinner, essentially get, he offered me the opportunity to curate the first Eater Awards here in New York. Oh, yeah. And, and I did the first two. And I would say you're, the thing that's so cool about Eater is like they're like make it cool. <laughs> Just yeah. that's, that's the directive, make it cool. And, you know, we – year two especially, like year one was all New York chefs and it was incredible. Year two we had – and this was 2011. We had Franklin Barbecue from Austin. It was at the Dream, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. We had, uh, you know, Danny from Mission Chinese. Mm -hmm. We had um, – you know, Thomas McNaughton of Flower and Water. Naomi from Beast came out. As what and, up, Naomi? Yeah, and Andy also uh, from Pock Pock came out and did his wings. And we had great New York chefs. Like at the time, um, we had Red Farm. Mm -hmm. and, and then Dave Arnold was there doing some interesting stuff. So it was just this incredible opportunity. And, and you had Absolute as a sponsor, if I remember. Oh, I can't remember who the lookers were. But I remember. <laughs> they I took care of the lookers. Well, I just remember <laughs> there being really good cocktails yeah. with a brand sure. that – would not normally grace the bars sure. of certain like cocktail type of dens. Yeah, I mean, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I, I know that our first Eater Awards was the first Eater Awards was sponsored uh, by Gregus. <laughs> it's been two years. I can't remember the second year, but yeah, I mean, they they did a great job. It was really fun to work with them, and then also you know working on the, what was formerly the Texas Hill Country Wine and Food Festival mm -hmm. in Texas, and we created an event called Live Fire, which was you know the whole theme was you know. Uh, chefs fire meat cooking over an open flame love it and we had like you know uh, chefs like Rene Ortiz of La Condesa in Austin uh, Brad Farmery from Public came down from New York uh, we you know Andy Ricker came out and did that event isn't Franklin it, Barbecue isn't Andy just awesome yeah oh and, and Franklin Barbecue was at that that second Eater Awards too in uh, the night in it I remember there's all these photos of you know people in front of the after party uh, you know, standing in front of the bar we were at, you know, and Aaron like hand feeding people big chunks of brisket. So yeah, he's good like that. Sort of like you know, sacrament. It's really it's it's when you see him with uh, some like wax paper and it's greasy. Just note, just get yeah. close. Yeah, just get close. Just get close. Get cozy. Um, so now you're doing all. So you've been doing all these events. Uh, can I ask what? And you don't have to name the the specific event. What the worst moment in events was for you? For me, we always like to try. <laughs> okay, we, you know, just like no, I can do that. What was that like? What the? What am okay, I doing? Okay, so this yeah. is an important lesson. There's this is an important lesson, that, and this happens in every 
you know uh, moment where you kind of get to the point in your career where you realize my friend a friend of mine calls it the kill the father moment when you realize you're kind of on your own and you don't there was a, a, an event that I was working for, and I won't say where or when, but I had brought in all these. I was working as a kind of a sponsorship guy, and I brought in all these sponsors. And you know, it became very clear the day of uh, this event that the uh, there wasn't quite the the production know how to execute in the proper way. And I remember just standing there looking at it with one very upset sponsor, being kind of upset, but also thinking like, okay, I'm done. Doing stuff that's hard. <laughs> yeah. And we've all been there. You I think know? we've all been there. I think you look at something and you go, Yeah. Why isn't this working? Yeah. And is it on me sure. or or is it is it who I'm working with right. or the way I'm approaching it? Yeah. Well then you get to a point in your career, you know, where you get you know, I'm very lucky. I mean, I get to work with at this point, you know, the, everyone I work with, I, I enjoy working with. I mean, the Feast team's incredible. Um, you know, I do a lot of work with Whole Foods Market. I work with other brands. And, you know, we I consult on other festivals. And, you know, you know, I, I think the takeaway from that was, you know, you, you just have to surround yourself with good people no matter what you do. Because, Absolutely. you know, if, if you're passionate about something, you know, and and it's like why you get out of bed in the morning, then you cannot – you, you got to make sure you're around people who feel the same way. Otherwise, you just sell yourself short. And the thing about events is that it's such a – it's all about human interaction. There's no sure. newspaper or radio station or TV show to hide behind. It And there's no editing. It's, no. It, it is what it is. And for as long as my brother and I have been doing events, we've always said you better like who you're working with yep. from the bouncer at the door. Because yep. what people don't really understand is that the guy checking IDs, he's your – Usually the first point of contact sure. for the night. Why do you think that you know when you go to a rest, a really well put together restaurant, the hostess stand that can make a break? Oh my god, the restaurant experience. We uh, we were just upstate over the weekend in in northern New York, and you know you just start to understand what really good service mm-hmm. and really good hosting and really good, and what it comes down to is hiring. Because look, in the event world or even the food world, stuff is going to happen. It's yeah. out of control, and it's all on how you handle it. Sure. And sometimes, sometimes you're going to be at an event that you're putting on where you just go, "I'm really sorry, this is out of my hands." Well, the key part of that, though, and this is why f- food is so different than like a music event. Absolutely. And this is funny because we're in this realm right now where a lot of a lot of music producers are hopping on the food event world. They do not understand it. Well, the thing that they, that you know, maybe some of them will or do eventually, but the thing that people forget is, you know, the food world is pretty small and even chefs that are really famous still know oftentimes the people who grow their food you know that's one thing so it's like it's really important community so i think you got to come in and you know really try to do your best to take care of of everyone you know and, and not you can't come in and be too pushy or uh, elitist you just can't it well, won't work here's the i think one of the best things and i i wish i could remember who really explains that to me that um someone who, who also had a foot in food and music world, and they go, what a lot of these m- music people don't understand is that with a band, one band, one act of entertainment yep. can engage with 100,000 people right. at a time. With food, it's a one-on-one experience. No, it's true. Even if you have three points of sales yeah. or four points of sale, you're still – you can't get through 100,000 people with food the way you can with music. And – it's a really delicate approach because you want to be able to obviously, and I know everyone hates saying this about events, but you got some point got it, you want to make a profit, 
have it be, especially if you want it to be a career, you got to be able to make money off of it. But at the same time, you don't want to make it so it's just so uncontrollably stuffed with people that it's a miserable experience. Well, it's got to be a good experience, you know, for 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 everybody. I mean, with Feast, you know, one of the things we do is, you know, we donate our net profits to charity. So, you Amazing. know, which last year in our first year we donated forty eight thousand dollars. Which for for a first year event, I mean, we know. That's it's, huge. It's it's hard. You You're know. lucky to break even on a first year. Yeah. Event. Well, we have we have an incredible team, and this year we're definitely on track to to, to top that. Um, but you know, you really have to make sure, like, you just have to think about the comparison to food and music too. It's like you know, unless you're Jesus Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, you're not going to be able to feed the multitudes of people with a little amount of food. I mean, the thing, and even then, I think he had some like a good weight staff. Yeah. There you go. He had excellent front of house. Excellent front of house. Yeah. Just, it's going to be a few more minutes. We got to turn a few more loaves of bread, <laughs> totally. a few more fishes. Just just pass it around. It was kind of like the Olive Garden. We got some mana kept coming. coming out. Yeah, yep. unlimited mana, unlimited breadsticks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, mana. Going Old Testament on very me. Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, with with. You know, with like a f- music festival, you put you know Radiohead on the stage, and you're right, a hundred thousand people are happy. The amount of of background and logistics it takes, even for an event of of a thousand people, to make sure that you know the lines aren't too long. I mean, the amount you have to invest in that, the amount of, you have, you know, I couldn't do it personally. I have to say, you know, I have a amazing director of events in for Feast named Emily Crowley, who literally is the reason why Feast goes off pretty much without a hiccup but you need those people who are like you know who, who are kind of like completely hospitable and take care of people but also have the brain of like an air traffic controller well and also who knows how to say i can't deal with you right now in yeah. a, a nice way or yeah. in a not so nice way sure. yeah um let's talk about feast uh-huh second year second year uh, so you've been doing these events, these events, and this consulting like that. How did Feast come to exist? Well, I think it was a couple of things. After IACP, International Association of Culinary Professionals, was in Portland for its annual conference in 2010, I was the guy in charge of the you know, organizing mm-hmm. that conference. You know, and, and there was it was a special more, moment in Portland food. I think you know there was you know Ruth Reichel came out and Michael Ruhlman came out and Judith Jones and Mater Jaffrey and kind of all these like legendary food people plus all this media and. And it was really fun to play host, you know. So that was at that moment. After that, it was like the seed was planted to like, wow, I think you know Portland should have an opportunity to play host every year. That was one thing. Um, so I, that was kind of what planted the seed. And you know, then I, I was kind of fishing the idea out there. And you know, I think all the tourism boards like Travel Oregon, Travel Portland, yeah, they were all on board with it. And a lot of the folks we worked with. But it really wasn't until I met Kerry Walsh who uh, was fresh off the boat from New York City, that the plan really solidified. She came here, and one of the first things she asked me is, when is the festival? And I'm like, well, there really isn't one, but, you know, there needs to be. Right. And she and I just immediately jumped on it. And, you know, Travel Oregon got behind us, you know, because Oregon really promotes itself heavily on food, as it should. I mean, it's not just about Portland. It's about that, you know, we grow more hops than any state in the country. We have – we we're – Oregon is a huge ex- export state for agricultural products. You know, we have we're the third largest wine producing state. We have over 400 wineries and a lot of damn good ones. We yeah. have, you know, forefront of beer culture, forefront of coffee culture. You know, it's just, you know, and then the chef piece is just because of all those things. You know, so we really felt it was a great place to have an event and so did all these other organizations and Carrie and I just went out and you know, we Worked and got a lot of folks on board. Bon Appetit got on pretty early with us. Amazing. Um, you know, there was a lot of personal connections. You know, there's there as well as 
um, you know, an affinity. There was a lot of friendships and a lot of, you know, a couple of folks like Kalu Henry, who works in events over at Bon Appetit, had, you know, lived in um, Portland for a while and worked in the wine industry and actually taught me more about Oregon wines than, than I knew and I'm a native. You know, so there was this, like, affinity. And, you know, we, we were able to build something that turned into a four-day event with about 45 different events. We had dinners. We had, you know, chefs from all over the place, you know. And, and this year is year two. I mean, we have – we're doing an Asian night market that – you know, Latin oh slash Asian night market. But this year it's more in the realm of street food. We have, like, you know, Michael Solomonoff mm-hmm. from Philadelphia and, you know, Hugh Akison from, from the south and Chris Cosentino and Danny from Mission Chinese and plus all the great Portland chefs like, you know, Andy Ricker – um, and you know a, a whole lot more. We're doing an event called High Comfort. It's essentially like comfort food pushed out of the comfort zone. So it's like you know crazy, awesome, over the top comfort food. And you know chefs like from New York, Andrew Carmelini's coming, and and uh, April Bloomfield's coming. You know on top of Chef Matt Leitner from from Atera here in New he's York. A boy, yeah, he's he's a good friend. And and uh, I I just have to say, we talked about this before. Yeah. Like you know I don't plug chefs. Because they're my friends, because there's a lot of chefs I'm friends with who, who I don't plug. But goddamn, his food is incredible. He, uh, he at the Sheriff's Drink thing, he did this. It looked like a macaroon, but it was yep. like this take on caviar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That dish. It's just one of the things where I go, yeah. how do I eat four more that without looking like I'm just shoveling oh, yeah, in it's, my face? It's pretty. He, it's it's definitely really really great. Um, but you know, the the thing too is we wanted to do a little different with with feast was. 70% of our lineup is local. Like, it's all these Oregon chefs and Portland chefs. And every damn beer you drink at Feast is from Oregon. And and every wine is from the Pacific Northwest. And that's where, like, if you look at, you know, the way a lot of the, the food festivals, I mean, there's food festivals popping up in places. Everywhere. But places known for specific products, you know, and... and do you want to shout out a city? What? Do you want to, tell, do you want to name a city? Oh, I, I shouldn't do that. Okay. But, you know, I mean, you know, you... You, I think f- events that are going to have longevity are going to be a you know mix. You know, we have national sponsors. We work yeah. with you know, and you need that network. But I think it's important to showcase the local industries. And I think festivals with longevities, you know, because I don't want to go to, you know, the equivalent of like going to Spain and drinking French wine. I want to go to I want to go to France and drink you know French wine. And and it's a lot like these music festivals where now, yeah. especially I mean, Europe is one thing. Because it's all these different countries, but there is definitely like we're going from, you know, east to west, right. June through August with with that. But if you start looking at food festivals in America, you start seeing the same like five yeah. or ten names pop up, and it is sort of like these headliners. But look, they're coming in maybe for the day. Yeah. They're not invested. They're not. Maybe they're using local products, but it's just it's not the same. I mean, sort of like. You feel you don't feel that you really experienced anything. You didn't learn anything right. about the city because you could be in, you, you know, North Carolina, or you could be in Wyoming, or you could be in Kansas because they're just saying like, "Oh, we're doing a food festival." Yeah. Well, we have eighty-two chefs to share at feast, and and seventy-five percent of them are from Portland and Oregon. Wow. And and a lot of people say, "Well, you're doing an event in Portland. Why have any chefs from out of?" Well, because it's really important. It's like bringing chefs. First of all, just the community and the camaraderie. Everyone in whatever industry they're in, they like to interact with people who do the same thing. I mean, you and I get along because we both do events. You know, yeah. and I remember the first time I met you, we talked events for like an hour. Yeah. You know, and, and that level of camaraderie, 
that's why a lot of chefs like doing these events. Yeah. And, you know, we wanted an excuse to not only bring out – I mean, this is a big tourism play for us too. You know, our economy in Oregon is based so heavily on food and we want people to come out every year and enjoy it. And we want people who are cooks and people who are media to come out and, you know – experience what Portland and Oregon is all about and then come back and tell people about it or come back and cook with our, you know, every protein at Feast is from the Pacific Northwest. So awesome. Don't, yeah. I love like the, the, uh, the Ollie's from Olympia, the yeah. oysters. Yeah. Oh my God. I could eat buckets. It's the Northwest is a special place. You know, this year too, we have a lot of Seattle chefs. That's great. Seattle's a good city uh, for food. We have, you know, like Renee Erickson from Wallace on the Carpenter, Tom Douglas. I know. I'll, 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 I will admit on air. I know about the Portland scene. I know very little about the Seattle scene. Yeah, Seattle is one of those cities because I think it's it hasn't gotten as much cred. For, it's probably the most underrated food city. I mean, it's everyone knows the food is good, but I think Seattle is known for so many other things too. Yeah, but it's also sort of like the way that Philadelphia oh, is Philly's, really Philly. Getting, I mean, I'm, I'm a Philly okay. boy, and uh, you know we're bringing Mark and Brad up tomorrow yeah. for the barbecue. Like I got Philly pride. Can we talk Philly? We can talk Philly, but Philly. to make my, to make okay. my analogy <laughs> is that Philly is in the way that Seattle is. Yeah. That like it sits so close to Portland, yeah. in the same way that Philly sat close to New York for so years that it's going to get its due. Sure. Well, here's the thing to remember though: Portland for years didn't get its due. Seattle was the big city in the Pacific North. It is the big city in the Pacific Northwest. It's it's you know it's funny people say is there a rivalry? Not really, because like it's kind of like it's apples and oranges. Or yeah, it's apples t- and CDs. Or grunge there you go. records. You know, yeah. the, I think the way the comparison that I think is best is, you know, the it's almost like Seattle versus Portland is almost like Manhattan versus Brooklyn. Outsiders think yeah. it's silly. Like I think the whole Manhattan versus Brooklyn thing is silly because both. But I, I have nothing vested in nothing it. invested. I, I think you, it's one of those things though that it's funny growing up when music played a bigger role in yeah. my life. I never thought twice about Portland. It was right. always Seattle. Now that food is the dominant thing sure. in my life, I rarely think about Seattle. When I think Northwest, Portland. Well, I mean, and I think it's that's a lot of times the case. But like, let's let's and with music. But here, here's the thing with music. And I remember going to high school, and there was these great bands like you know Greg Sage and the Wipers from mm-hmm. from from Portland, uh, Dead Moon. That were these legendary bands that like you know I guess you could say they were like the. I'm trying to think of a good analogy. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, the Melvins, it's like, uh, oh, gosh, what's the name of that old, that crazy deli in the Lower East Side, that, that Shopskin, Shopsons? Shopsons. Yeah, it's like, I guess he's like the Melvins of uh, New York food. Tom Shopsons. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, you, you have like this, uh, you know, Seattle is a city that is known for so many things. Seattle is, is a big international city. It's about, you know, probably 75% larger than Portland. It has... Boeing, it has Microsoft, it has a you know thriving. You know, Portland has a very thriving startup scene right now, but Seattle's known for many things. It had the whole grunge thing. The whole Portland food, I think, Portland got really well known for food for a lot of reasons. But you know, part of it was the whole country in this sort of down economy was obsessed with the type of stuff Portland already did. Right. It was obsessed with pickling. It was obsessed with DIY. It was at a time when, you know, in 2008 or 2007, not to say we didn't have a food reputation before that, but it really took off then. You know, it it wasn't sexy to talk about the most expensive restaurant in Vegas. No No one cared about the $35 entree. Life, you know, the whole story, whether you were talking about, you know, 
real estate or wine or food became all of a sudden all about quality of life and not luxury. And no place personified that more than Portland. Now that the economy is coming back, things are kind of getting, you know, a little more luxe again. But, um, you know, and I think you know, that that changes the narrative. But I think Portland's done a good job at, at, at establishing itself. But, you know, in Seattle, there's amazing with, food. With no little help. To, I mean, you helped as well. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that have helped. A lot of I mean, people. It's a, I always think it's funny when, you know, people take credit. You know, I mean, the before yeah. before me, there's been years. You know, James Beard was from Portland. There's right. been years and years of people, but you know, no, nobody is more responsible for for Portland having a food reputation than all the great chefs. Absolutely, and not just the ones you've heard up now. I mean, before you know, before Naomi Pomeroy and Andy Ricker and Gabe Rucker, there were guys like Greg Higgins and you know uh, Corey Schreiber. I mean, it's gone back a long ways. You know, all the great farmers, all the great winemakers, all the great brewers. You know, and and to be honest, a couple, you know, the tourism uh, industry out there that really does a good job in promoting the right things. Yeah, which is tough. Which is very tough. Yeah. It's very tough. What do you want to say about Philly? Uh, well, I, I finished the thought real quick. Seattle's a great place to yeah. eat. Walrus and Carpenter right now is one of my favorite restaurants of anywhere on the planet. And Are they going to be at Feast? Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and, you know, Canlis is an incredible restaurant. Jason Franey is a brilliant chef. Um, you know, Seattle has this sort of new kind of... You know, for a long time, I sort of always thought Seattle had a good food scene, but it, like you didn't go there and you say, "Oh, there's a certain thing." It's kind of right. like a bunch of good restaurants with like this really interesting kind of neo bistro thing happening there. There's like, like you know, chefs like uh, there's a chef there named uh, uh, Matt Dillon who won the James Beard Award last year. He opened a place. I think it's called Bar Sejour. It's in Pioneer Square, and it's like there's all these. They're kind of bistro. They're kind of minimal. They almost feel like the type of restaurant you find in, like, you know, Scandinavian country. Mm-hmm. They, they're heavy on the fish. They're heavy on really interesting bread programs. Walrus and Carpenters like that. So there's definitely this thing happening in Seattle right now that's really interesting that I think people are really starting to notice. But Seattle's a, Seattle is, as is Portland, Seattle is also a fantastic food city. I feel like my list of things to do on the West Coast is getting like longer right. and longer. And you need to go to Vancouver, BC, too. When well, I've been there. to Vancouver. Yeah. My brother and I did a, in our, in our youth, did a uh, drive from Boston yeah. up to Montreal to Vancouver. Oh, wow. That's a long Down to drive. Seattle. It was great. But yeah, the toughest leg is, like you said, the toughest leg is right in the middle. There's nothing. No, there's nothing. I mean, you want to talk about, no- this was 2001, 2000, no, 2002. There's nothing in the middle of Canada at that point. Um, Canola Fields. Not even that. I mean, yeah. literally not even like the, the big hay ball, like nothing. Nothing. Um, well, I think we're out of time, which is unfortunate because there's so much more we was can talk about. Was that the whole hour? That was an hour. I didn't uh, even play any music. Well, do we have time to talk Philly? Yes, we have time to talk Philly, and then I want to have one last question. I have one last question for you before we So Unique that. Eats, Irene sent me to Philly for Unique Eats this year, and I was blown away. It's amazing. I, look, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I mean, I have my love of food from my mother and my grandmother. Uh, but I left in 2000 to go to college, and I never went. I didn't move back, and I was away for a few years. And every time I come back to Philly, you know, it was no longer just us going down to Chinatown, which is, by the way, Philadelphia Chinatown is fantastic. But it was like, oh wow, there's actual like restaurants that are really good that I want to eat at, and there are names coming out of Philly that just wasn't Budokan and things like that. Yeah. Like when I thought of Philadelphia growing up, it was Lebec Finn, and Lebec Finn was like this unattainable restaurant and the four seasons in Philadelphia which is phenomenal but now it's got its own independent voice its own culture it's not New York's little brother 
It's Philadelphia. Well, it was like you know Peter Sipperko and yeah. there's, you know the the Vetri restaurants. Brad Spence from you know your boy who's coming in tomorrow. I'm I mean, excited. He, not only just such great food at Amis, but also just such a nice guy. At Philadelphia, Michael Solomonoff. Michael like, Solomonoff. The guy is heart his, of gold. His pop up at the Sambar was insane. We went to the, the industry tasting. He's coming to feast. I can't wait. He did this lamb shoulder on Persian rice. Mm-hmm. That we were eating at three in the morning. That I was just, I was like, I gotta stop yeah, eating because stuff. I gotta stop eating because I'm just eating rice with lamb fat, and I know that I'm gonna get sick, but I couldn't stop eating it. Uh, but Philly also has this uh, very like blue collar, salt of the earth, working city yeah. tripe sandwiches. Yeah, culture with you know scrapple and all that stuff. And it's, it's a cool city. It's a cool city, home of the pizza museum as yeah. well, uh, which is like a thousand different like pizza. Chotskis and things like that. So I love Philly. I'll put it this way: it's, it's if you can make it down, you can eat the entire eat and drink the entire weekend, and you would scratch the surface. Maybe. Yeah, that's true. Maybe. What's your parting question? Who are the chefs to look for at feast this year? Well, I mean, I think you can go into our website. And you'll see a lot of names you recognize, but like Chris, whose names I can't pronounce from Night Plus Market in L.A. That, oh, that's yeah. going to be amazing. Um, I'm excited to have Paul Key back from, from Austin. Shout out to Paul. Paul's my boy. I mean, he, he's just a, such an incredible chef who hits it at every level, does does the lowbrow thing, does the highbrow thing. I mean, that's the really amazing thing is to see, mm-hmm. like, to eat, to dine with him at, and you talk about amazing Houston dining. Yep. Uchi in Houston is phenomenal. As, as is Uchi, Uchi in Austin. No, Tyson Cole, let me yeah. just say this, changed the game in Central Texas. Changed it, you know, and 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 Uchi's one of the best restaurants anywhere in the anywhere on the planet. Anywhere on the planet, people, yeah. Got to give a shout out to Phil Spear too. The the culinary, I mean, it's just so Yo, the Phil, desserts. Phil and I have had some nights. Phil yeah. and I have had some nights. But what haunts me the most in my relationship with Phil is that corn dessert with the uh, like the the polenta ice cream at Uchiko. Have you ever had it? No, I haven't had that. Okay, we'll go to Texas. We should. We'll and go to Texas. The, 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 yeah, he's so good. The yeah, other chefs, real quick. I mean, uh, a lot of great New York chefs. Danny Bowen from Mission Chinese, Shout Andrew Carmelini, yeah. a- April Bloomfield, my good friend Brad Farmery, of course Andy Ricker, Gabe Rucker, Naomi Pomeroy, you know Jen Lewis. I, I really got to shout it out to all the Portland chefs. You're going to come to feast. You're going to see a lot of names you recognize. But you know, one of the biggest takeaways was a lot of people will say, you know, that the, the the Portland chefs a lot of times are the ones that, you know, they remember the most. Probably that's a home court advantage thing too. But, you know, we really have an amazing food scene in Portland and it's deep. You know, it's, it's not it's not just the chefs you've heard of. We have 700 food carts. You got to do some crate digging. Yeah, and you also have to do your research too because, you know, the, a lot of the better restaurants in Portland are on the west side. And, the, you know, they're – or sorry, on the east side, you know, and, and they're far out. So you got to do your research. And you got to make your reservations. Because well, that, a lot of places don't take reservations I know. in Portland. But you know, places to check out right now in Portland: Ava Jeans, which is Dwayne's restaurant. Oh yeah, amazing game changer. Joshua McFadden, the chef, who used to be at Franny's in Brooklyn. Um, Ox is an incredible place. You know, it's it, there's just so many good places right now, and you know, I, I, Feast is a great excuse to get out there and you know check out Portland. How long would you recommend going out? Uh, you know. This is one of the things that's so funny. People come to Portland and you don't go to Portland for urban culture. New Yorkers will come there and they're like, oh, well, I was bored in two days. Well, it's freaking Portland. It's like go, go to Portland, enjoy Portland for yeah. a couple of days, eat at the good restaurants, rent a bike, but then get out. Like a couple of weeks ago, uh, Matt Ducker from Bonap came out and I took him to uh, – I took him uh, down the, the gorge 
in uh, you know the or the Columbia Gorge, which is incredible. Like I always try to make it a point now when uh, when New York friends come out, you know, got to get them out of the city. Absolutely. So you know, go go to Mount Hood, go to the beach. That's really what the whole story is about. Because a lot of times, not only is it beautiful, that's where all the food comes from, and that's the reason why you know the reason why Oregon has Portland has great food is because we have a state that produces incredible seafood, incredible hops, incredible grapes, good proteins, and you know, and you just happen to. All this stuff comes from really beautiful places. So I would say, you know, give yourself three or four days, spend a couple of days in Portland, and then you know, take a side trip to the Columbia River Gorge, side trip to the beach. Awesome. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for talking and hanging out with me. No, it's been fun. Uh, FeastPortland.com, September nineteenth through twenty second. Book now. Yeah. Book. That's that's my recommendation. Book now. I'm definitely coming out. I'm sold after this. There's no way. <laughs> there's no way I'm not coming out. So look look for me. There, I'll be uh, stuffing my face somewhere. In He'll the be the guy passed out in the corner. No, I'm pretty good at that stuff because my desire to eat outweighs my desire to drink. Okay. Um, well, last year we actually cleaned out the entire town of Fernet. The whole town ran out of Fernet. Oh my god! Only, only in a Portland food festival could you clean out the entire. Maybe, maybe deep Brooklyn. Uh, anything else you want to add about the event? Anything? All right. Just look forward to seeing you all out there, and you know, thanks for having me on today. Awesome. Well, uh, it was great talking to you, and hopefully next time you're back, we'll uh, have you on again. Uh, just a reminder, tomorrow night, uh, Mark Vetri, Brad Spence from the wonderful Vetri on me, down in Philadelphia, bbqblowoutjuly.eventbrite.com. Uh, come hang out, get some Brooklyn Brewery, get some food. It's going to be great.